I've entitled this morning's message, Some Special Exhortations for Some Special Peoples. When the Apostle Paul stepped into the synagogue in the book of Acts, he said, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. In other words, is there a way you can exhort us with your word? The word exhortation means to give solace, comfort, and consolation. And as we proceed through this passage, uh, this morning, it goes all the way from verse 9 to 25, verse 25. My hope is to take us through the passage uh, asking and answering a series of six questions. And that we will cover every verse within verse 9 to 25, but we will cover those verses and we will look at those verses in relationship to uh, the answer to a given question that the passage really unpacks. And the privilege to unpack that together this morning begins, of course, with the first question, who are we? As Christians, who are we? We read it in verse 9 there. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Love it. And yet it's, it's still necessary this morning to at at the very outset of our study time together, if you're taking notes, you'll have a lot of verses that reference these things, but it's necessary to remind ourselves of Peter's reading audience. It's been understood throughout church history because of what we have in the text of the New Testament that the Apostle Paul's ministry was predominantly to the Gentile world, to the non-Jewish world. And that the Apostle Peter's ministry was predominantly to the Hebrews. And yet Peter had to learn a great lesson because God was calling him to that ministry. But early on in his uh, born-again life, he began to think that the Hebrews were special people. And that the Gentiles were not in God's eyes. And you recall, some of you may know the account. If you don't, please read it today in Acts chapter 11 when Peter has a vision of a, a food coming down, a cloth coming down, and on this cloth were all kinds of foods that from a Hebrew perspective were unclean. And in this vision, this dream, he heard the Lord say to him, Peter, rise and eat. You remember what Peter's response was? He said, not so, Lord. Now, those are mutually exclusive phrases, actually. If he is Lord, you don't tell him no. But Peter was saying, no, not so, Lord. I've, I've never touched anything unclean, eaten anything unclean. And you know the story that God reprimanded him and said, Peter, don't take that which I have cleansed and call it unclean. And he is told that he's going to go to the house of 
a Gentile named Cornelius. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, Cornelius has a vision of a, of a man coming to them and sharing with them the things of God. And so he heard of this one named Peter that was up in Joppa and he, he sends one of his servants and there's a knock on the door and no sooner that Peter realizes that, whoa, wait a minute, this thing called the Christian faith is bigger than just the Hebrew world and, and God wants to instruct me and, you know, broaden my horizons. And then there's a knock on the door. And sure enough, as Peter opens the door, it's Cornelius' servant saying, my master had a vision of one coming and telling him all about the things of God. Bingo. In itself, it is a beautiful study, but the short of it is that Peter goes. He's about to start to share the gospel with Gentiles. Acts 11.18 says that the Holy Spirit came upon them even before he began to speak. And he says he recognized that God had also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. Acts 11.18. So thus here in this letter, we're reminded of Peter's reading audience that not only his reader's audience would understand this, they would know this as it goes around them, that according to the previous verses, in verse 7 and 8, that some are going to stumble at Christ, but some are going to believe. If I draw your eyes up to verse uh, eight of chapter two. Remember what he Peter said to them there. He said that uh, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So there are some that the word comes to, whether Hebrew or Gentile, Jew or Gentile, and some just stumble at Christ. They can't get over the hump of God having one way, one truth, and one life. And so they stumble, although the word was appointed to them. But then Peter says, but you. And yes, he is talking to a Hebrew reading audience, but he's also based on his experience with Cornelius and thus elsewhere knows that he is speaking to a Gentile audience as well. As he said, therefore you who believe, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, he is the stone which the builders rejected. So again, Peter's audience. Does it involve Israel? Absolutely. Has Israel replaced the church? Absolutely not. In other words, when Peter says, but you are, as he says, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, he has moved from national Israel and its limited kingdom to the larger and broader kingdom of God. And so every one of God's children is special. 
they referred to that as <clears throat> substitutional theology, reformation, uh, dispensationalism, where some will at times think that all the promises in the Old Testament and all the things in the Old Testament are now no longer for the Hebrew, but they're all for the church. And that's just absolutely not true. Yes, there are many things that God promised to the people of Israel that become clearly uh, the portion of the Christian. But you think of things like his promise to give them the land. That's a promise to national Israel. And Israel alone. Uh, the covenant of circumcision. That was for Israel and Israel alone. And yet, metaphorically, we know that God told Joshua, every place that you set the sole of your feet on, I will give to you. Metaphorically, in the life of the Christian, the place that I go to that God calls me to go to, that I place myself in, God says, I'm going to give that to you. I will be with you. I will be your rear guard. As it relates to circumcision, it's no longer a physical outward act, but rather the circumcision of our heart. So that's deep stuff this morning, believers. That's the kind of uh, food we need to feed on. As Paul wrote in Romans 11, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness has happened in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. In other words, God hasn't forgotten Israel, but in terms of his uh, attention and focus being toward national Israel and the salvation of Israel, which we are promised will happen. Right now, his attention is on the Gentile. That would be anyone who is not a Jew. And so as Christians, uh, here's this is the introduction. See how far we get this morning. As Christians, we become something that was first appointed to Israel, but now refers to every and all believers in Christ. Who are we? Well, we just read it. We are his own special people. I love that. We are chosen, royal, holy, and his own special people. But we are also, in verse 11... We are sojourners and pilgrims. Notice when he said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. The two words in their original language, if you're taking note, mean this. A temporary resident whose home is somewhere else. You are temporary. I am temporary. This is not our home, though we like our comforts of home, do we not? I mean, I've got a bunch around my house that I've set up that I like them there. But we're reminded because of the truth of Scripture that we're to hold these things loosely. Abraham, in Genesis 23, 4, he said, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you when he went to go buy a burial place for Sarah to the sons of Heth. David, in his prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, 15, he said, 
We are aliens and pilgrims before you as were our fathers and our days on the earth are as a shadow and without hope. David understood the temporariness of being here. He says in Psalm 119.9, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. And Paul to his letter in the, to the Christians in the city of Philippi, remember he told them, that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, you and I, are special people. We are sojourners and pilgrims. But lastly, we are also sheep. The text says that has gone astray. Look at verse 25. We didn't read that this morning, but if you look at verse 25, we read it there, it says, for you, and that you is, uh, runs concurrent through the passage he's writing to and talking to the same people. He says, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Remember in the Gospel of John, several references Jesus was talking to his followers. He said things like, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. But if you recall in John 10, 16, he says, I have others who are not of this fold. In other words, Yes, he went after the lost sheep of Israel, but he has others who are not of this fold, meaning that they are sheep as well. If you are mine, he says, my sheep obey my commands. And here Peter is saying to the believer, to the one who's come to Christ, that you are special, your time here is temporary, and you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Beautiful. But you might ask the question, as I will pose it again to us this morning, well, what happened that made us special? Second question. What happened if, since we are special people, his own special people, What happened to make us special? Well, verse 9, we read it there, the second portion of it, and we may go back and forth a little bit this morning, but look at verse 9. He said, He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, that's what God did is, He sent out a holy call and left you and I with a choice whether we would answer or not. And as that call went forward and our our spiritual man was awakened and we desired to know and understand why am I here? Why have I been born? What am I supposed to accomplish Uh, while I'm breathing and living on this earth, that call went out and we answered, God, you're the one who formed me in my mother's womb. And I am beautifully, wonderfully made. And and I 
see that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, into this world to take upon himself the penalty of the very thing that separates me from the one who created me. And I, I believe Jesus, that you bled on the cross of Calvary for me and that if I ask you, you'll forgive me of my sin. And so you ask and he does. And then the scripture tells us that the spirit of God comes into you and I and we are born anew. And at that very moment that we are born anew, we are called out, we are translated, we are moved from a world that is um, umbrellaed in darkness into a world that now is into his marvelous light. And you might, you might entertain, you mean the whole world is in darkness until they come to Christ? Yes. There is a variety of enlightenments. We went through a period of world history that was called the Enlightenment Age. And even in our own, some of our own uh, current history, you and I who've lived long enough, we've seen various movements of people and groups globally who thought they've come to understand a given light. Uh, wasn't it the Beatles themselves? They went to the Maharishni and they, they were searching for truth and light. And all of them sat there and said, Om. And they think they came to a light. There are a variety of lights, folks. But Jesus put it so clearly when he said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 22, he said, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be filled or full of light. In other words, that inlet, that eye gate, if, if it's good, if it is really seeing the thing that the creator has intended it to see, then it will be good. But he went on to say, Matthew 6, 23, take a note, memorize this verse, get it solid in your heart, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Do you understand that? That there can be a assimilation of the light of God, but it truly is darkness and it is great. Scripture tells us that uh, God's adversary, the devil himself, can change his form to appear as an angel of light. John recording for us what God said to the church at Ephesus, the Christians in the church at Ephesus. You know, the letters in Revelation to the seven churches, those were real churches. They're not metaphorically churches alone. They are, were real places in which God wanted to speak to through the revelation of Jesus Christ that he gave to the Apostle John while he was on the island or Isle of Patmos and John wrote, according to this one church, in Revelation 3, he said, I, I know your works. I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. 
So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Whoa. Wouldn't want to go through life confused about what I really am apart from God. Wouldn't want to delude myself that I can just pull up my bootstraps and kind of, you know, muddle through this life when God says, if you're not hot for me and you're not absolutely cold and rejecting me, there's this middle ground that's very dangerous. And yet in that middle ground, you're poor, you're naked, you're blind. And the offer God would never leave you or I there if that's where we end up, God forbid, as an individual or, a, or his church globally. The offer is, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see. Revelation 3, 15 through 18. We need the Spirit of God to anoint our eyes so that we can see. This world is headed right where God intends it. And from a natural perspective, in various dangerous waters. And we need God's wisdom and discernment. And Paul put it this way. He said to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, he said, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world has blinded, who do not believe, lest, and then this is where I love, he gets to, he says, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. See, that's what happened. What happened to you? Why are you special? You were moved from darkness into his marvelous light. What a move. That's not all. The other thing that has happened to God's own special people is that we've obtained mercy. Notice verse 10, as he goes on to say, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We were translated from darkness to light and we've become the obtainers of the mercy of God. That's what's made us his own special people. And we know that, of course, Peter was writing to a Hebrew audience, but we know he was writing to a Gentile audience as well. The Hebrew, in him and perhaps in his reading audience that would have known uh, that Peter is, is, has this great working knowledge of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever kind of 
seen that. But Peter and the Apostle Paul, of course, but Peter had this great working knowledge of Scripture where he knew what verses from, they didn't have a, remember, they didn't have this New Testament. All they had were the scrolls, what we call the Old Testament. But Christ is in the Old Testament, concealed, and Christ is in the New Testament, revealed. And so Peter would use these verses one of which comes to us in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Notice what the prophet Hosea said that echoes what Peter is writing here in his first letter. Hosea 2.23, Hosea is speaking on behalf of God, and he says, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. That's what Peter was referring to. Isn't that beautiful? He's not just, you know, grabbing straws out of the air. He's referring to a holy writ that makes it thus true and solid and applicable. Paul, again, writing to the Romans, Romans chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, that, that he, God, might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Vessels of mercy. You are a vessel of mercy this morning. You have obtained it if you are his. You are very special. So we see that we are special people, his own special people. We are sojourners and pilgrims. We are sheep who have returned to the shepherd of our and overseer of our soul because... We have obtained mercy and because, as I mentioned earlier, we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a natural question that now follows this line of thinking as we seek to work through the passage asking these six various questions. The next question is this. Since I know I am his own special people, and since I know that I've obtained mercy and have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, natural question would follow, what am I to do with what I now know to be as a special people? What am I to do? What are we to do as special people? Well, there's a whole host in here. Ten things, I will endeavor to run through some of them somewhat quickly, but I, I just don't want to not unpack this completely or at least in a wide way. So the first thing we have to see that what we're to do 
or why we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, why we've obtained mercy. Again, right there in verse 9, it says, to proclaim the praises of him who called us. That's one of the basic things that we now, as a special people, called out of darkness into his light. One of the things we're to do is to simply praise and proclaim praises to him. What does it mean to proclaim the praises of of him who called you? Oh, I think the scripture is pregnant with uh, many understandings of that. Many of you who've been reading your Bible for a lot of years could probably just chapter and verse me, right? With what some of those things mean or what, what that means by some of those verses, rather. But, you know, what I'll do this morning is just give us a couple of examples that are dear to my heart. One of which comes to us in the account of uh, the patriarch David. And David, we know David as a man after God's own heart, but we know him also as uh, an adulterer, the one who went in with Bathsheba, a murderer who killed Uriah. So we, we reconcile those things because David understood the need for repentance of his sin. And in that repentant place of always seeking after God, he, from that point forward, he sought to be a God seeker. So you might say, well, his life was then, you know, after the initial confrontation of bad choices, now he starts making good choices that his life is going to be, oh, just whistles and bells, bells and whistles, be all good, right? Well, not so. I mean, he had trouble in his own household, Absalom. I mean, my goodness, there was, there was some real parenting classes that need to go on there in David's life. But one of, one of which is David as a leader. And he was a great leader. He was a leader of men. And the study of of David's life, for any of you men who want to be uh, a man after God's own heart, is a great study. Any of you who may be called to leading men, his life is a great study. Alan Redpath, uh, the, uh, the maker of a man of God, great book, resource. But David, as a leader, he had several hundred men that followed him throughout his journey in life. And at one point, he had left his wife and children, as well as his men, had left their wives and their children and had gone off to war. And while they were at war, another warring faction came and burned the entire town. Ziklag, it's called, you find it in 1 Samuel chapter 30, came and burned the entire town and took the women and the children. And when David and his men were coming back from the war that they had gone and fought, if you read the text, chapter 30 of of 1 Samuel, they get close enough to where they can see the horizon and there's smoke. And so as they... They travel forward and they get there. They look over the hilltop and they look down upon the place where 
Every precious treasure in their life had been left. And they see the stubble and the, the smoke and the burning and they realize that their loved ones have been carried off. Oh, and as you read the text, <laughs> what did the men do? Did they turn to David and go, come on, David, let's go get him? Not at first. They turned to him and said, this is your fault. And they began to blame him and, and chide against him. And I'll tell you what, any of you men called to leadership, you better put on nail skin leather out exterior. Don't be no soft cookie because you won't last. You won't make it. Somehow you have to reconcile as a, as a man of God being tough in hardship and yet tender when necessary. And so David starts getting this backlash from the very men that he had led all his life. What would you do? What would you do in that moment? I'll tell you what David did. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, one of my favorite verses. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because of the soul of all the people was grieved, and every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That to me is like life-changing and powerful. But David chose at that moment to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. To somehow in that crisis of, of experience, praise God. Why do we know that it's the praise of God, that it's waiting upon God, that it's seeking God? Of course, Isaiah 40, verse 31 comes to us. But those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. To just, Paul said, I have, I've known how to abase and how to abound. I have discovered, he says in his letter to the Philippians, in every way, how to be content in the state that I am in. We are called as special people, obtainers of mercy. One of the things we're to do is to proclaim the praises of him who called us. Verse 11. Another thing we are to do, and we'll make this one our last this morning, is we are to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. You see that in the latter portion of the verse? He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from less, uh, fleshly lust which war against the soul. Now, in our modern uh, life here in the West, in the U.S., a lot of the times when that uh, comes up to abstain from fleshly lust, we often think, uh, I'll just say what a lot of commentaries say, we think of sexual sin. But notice what it says. It says uh, fleshly lust. Okay? So it's dealing with the, the flesh. 
And sexual sin or sexual lust is not the only problem with the flesh. Uh, The flesh has multiple problems for sure. In fact, Paul in his letter to the Christians at Galatia writes about the problems that the flesh has. You know what they are. Turn with me and we'll close this morning to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. That would be to the left in your Bible. Backwards. Hebrews, past Titus, past Thessalonians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. If you get to Philippians, keep going back. Go to chapter 5. And Paul writes there very succinctly. In verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he gives a list. Shall we look at it together? He says, Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and lewdness. Now certainly sexual sin is involved right there. Uh, We have someone engaging in in intercourse with another another person of the opposite sex uh, outside of the boundaries of marriage. And in fact, that individual is married and they're engaged in sexual intercourse, sexual uh, uh, involvement with someone other than their spouse. Adultery. When we talk about fornication, that is, of course, the act of sexual intercourse prior to the marriage covenant having taken place. When a man and a woman will engage in that type of relationship and yet not submit themselves to the covenant of the bounds of marriage. And not that anyone here necessarily understands that, but I will tell you after 30 years of pastoral ministry, there are a lot of times that Christians walk through the door and are engaged in that and think that it's okay. When in essence, it's the flesh. And we talk about lewdness there, of course, is is in that same category and uncleanliness. Lewdness is is all over our media today. I mean, someone capped it probably a decade ago or more that sex sells. So you find lewdness all over advertisement today in, in so many arenas. But as if that weren't enough, Paul goes on about what the flesh is In verse 20, he talks about idolatry. Okay, what is idolatry? That's holding something, uh, idolizing something other than the true and the living God. American idol. How about that, right? (laughs) No extra charge. That just came to me. Okay, so... I kind of hate it when teachers do that. There's never a charge anyway. So, uh, Sorcery. 
Look at that. The flesh is sorcery. What is sorcery? Well, before you and I sit here and go, oh, that's, that's someone wearing a devil suit in a black room doing omens. Well, yes, it is that. But it is other things engaged that have sorcery at its root. Um, studying the stars, asking the stars to give you direction in life. Uh, hold on to your hat. There's no such thing as Christian yoga. It can't exist. There are, they are too mutually exclusive. Yoga comes from a East, East, uh, Eastern methodology that talks about meditating on oneself to get to a, a higher plane or plateau. And Jesus didn't say anything about you need to meditate on yourself to get closer to me. He said you need to deny yourself. I know I'm in trouble now, but anyway... Away we go. We're talking about sorcery here, the, ver the varieties of sorcery. And if you have questions after this morning about scriptural evidence of why these things are true, please don't just walk out and not answer those. Let's sit down and let's talk about it. And I'm not, I am absolutely not against someone who believes they are right in what they may be doing. But I would be more pleased to have the opportunity to explain why someone who believes what they're doing is biblical but it is not to go over it with them in scripture to help them see sorcery uh, hatred oh oh man we're out of time hatred huh if you had a nickel for every time you said, I hate. Oh. And this is, of course, intended toward people, but contention? Contentions. What, what is contentions? That's arguing and fighting, right? Just having a contention with another person. What we're saying is that you're not a... It's not that you and I are not a Christian if these things occasionally happen in our life, particularly this second fortune. But what we are saying is that those things are not of Christ, they're of the flesh. Do you see the difference? Contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresies. I have to close this out. Envy, murder, drunkenness revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things, underline that phrase, take note, doesn't mean somebody who's done that once, or maybe has done it a couple of times, but someone who, in their own volition, willfully decides to continue in those things. That someone, anyone who practices such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are we to do as a special people, sojourners and pilgrims who've obtained mercy? We're to abstain from fleshly lust. 
abstain. What does that mean? We're not to be inclined toward them. We're to find out what they, where they are in our life and step back from them, not engage in them. We are to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We'll stop there this morning and we'll pick it up next week when we continue. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Worship team, we come forward. Heavenly Father, what a delight to open the Word of God this morning together and to allow you to speak to us, your people, a special people. What a great thing, Lord. What an amazing thing that you call us special. And I pray that each one who has heard my voice this morning and who has read your Word has sensed your nail-scarred hands holding them and telling them that they're special. And that, Lord, we've obtained mercy. Thank you for your mercy this morning, Lord. We delight in who you are as our God and as our Savior. Have your way in our life this week, Lord. Ask it in Jesus' name.